1: The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 33. Mr Chaffin's Opportunity. Six months later, we found ourselves in Philadelphia, with a few days off before the start of yet another Sullivan and Considine circuit. Charlie was bigger and bigger news everywhere we went... Theatre managers were using his name as the drawer and their posters, twice as large and twice as often as the name Fred Carno, and if the Governor ever got to hear of it, he'd no doubt blow his top. This time around, we would be playing a show called A Night at a London Club, which was a sort of hybrid of mummingbirds and the new stuff that Charlie had added to the Wow Wows, which allowed him to combine the inebriated Swell and Archibald Binks. I was his chief antagonist, a character called Mr Meek, who was continually prodded to complain by his wife, played by Wren Hurley. We had some good moments, but there wasn't much for anyone else to get excited about. Little Annie Forrester was the only one, really, who had anything like a star turn, a lovely showpiece song. Charlie had seen to that. And, by the way, anything else Annie's heart desired. Charlie was over Tilly. That much was crystal clear. My own feelings were a little bit more complicated. At first, I'd been distraught. At the end of that week in Salt Lake City, it was all I could do to force myself aboard the boxcar, so fierce was the memory of being there with her. As soon as the train was underway, I stumbled through to the prop compartment, but it was unbearable to be in there now. I pressed on out to the observation platform at the rear of the train, banging my shin on something hard on the way. Once outside, I looked back at where we had come from, at the rails carving across the plateau back to Salt Lake, with the mountains on the horizon beyond the great Salt Lake Desert. I climbed up onto the roof of the boxcar so I could look in the direction we were heading, in the direction Tilly had already travelled. I stood straddling the skylights on top of the car, looking along the train, along the carriages ahead of us, all the way to the locomotive at the front, the smoke pouring from the funnel. And I wondered, should I try and stand up here as long as I could, being battered by the cold, dry gale, until my feet went numb and a friendly gust whipped me away to oblivion? Or perhaps there'd be a bridge to sweep me off, Were there bridges on this line? Should I ride the roof into the mountains ahead, looking for a scenic gorge to throw myself into and end it all? I glanced down through the skylight between my feet, shuffling forward a foot or so to make sure no one inside could see me standing up top. This manoeuvre gave me an angled view into the car below, and down there, framed by the skylight window, was Charlie Chaplin. Where in the height of summer there had been a block of ice... Alfred organised a tureen of hot vegetable soup on a candle burner to take the edge off the January chill. Charlie had ladled out a cup and was presenting it as a token to little Annie Forrester, and she was smiling shyly, accepting it two-handed. Then he sat, thinking to himself, and he smiled a smug, self-satisfied smirk, as though something had gone his way. I imagined him smiling just that very smile at the news that I had disappeared, taking myself out of his life, out of our personal competition, handing him the victory.' And I couldn't. I couldn't give him that. That, believe it or believe it not, was what made me turn and crawl back to the rear of the boxcar, shin down to the observation platform, slip back inside past all the props and costumes and carry on with my miserable life. Smashing hairstyle, Arthur, Ethel Seaman sang out when I reappeared, that will definitely catch on. As the weeks went by after that, I struggled to explain Tilly's departure and often copious amounts of alcohol assisted me in that struggle usually after the evening performances, but increasingly before, and occasionally during. Had she really, as she said in her note, simply decided that the life was no longer for her? Had she become so concerned about her family's disappearance from South End after the explosion of the Punch and Judy stand that she decided to go back to England at once and search for them? It was possible, I supposed, but she would have told me that, wouldn't she? I went back to that explanation from time to time, gnawed away at it, "'but I couldn't escape the suspicion that the true reason had something to do with me "'and with Charlie Chaplin. "'The powerful rekindling of our affections that day in the boxcar "'must have had some effect, mustn't it? "'Must have set her thinking about what she wanted. "'Had she told Charlie that she wanted to break with him "'and he'd promptly dispatched her back to England "'as he had the hapless Frank Melroyd? "'Or had she been unable to choose between us? "'Had she simply thrown up her hands and refused to do it? "'Whatever.' It seemed she'd found herself unable to go on travelling the United States of America with me or with him. And she was gone. Gone for good. No way of finding her, contacting her, no sense in giving everything up to try. So in those days I was just numb. Stuck there, going through the motions night after night, week after week, town after town, with Charlie Bloody Chaplin. My ambitions to supplant him as, number one, a long distant memory. I couldn't see how anything was ever going to change. Then, one morning, we were all in our dressing rooms at the Nixon-Nerdlinger Theatre in Philly, waiting to be released to look for a couple of days' entertainment. A small boy, wearing shorts with braces, a white shirt and a peaked cap, came marching along the corridor and into the dressing room, bold as brass, shouting at the top of his breaking adolescent voice, "'Western Union! Western Union! Looking for Mr. Alfred Reeves!' "'I'm Reeves,' Alf said. The boy stepped smartly over to our manager and held out a tan-coloured envelope. "'Cable for you, sir!' Alf frowned and took the envelope from him, and in a flash the lad was off down the stairs on another errand. The ladies came through from their dressing room, curious, and we all watched as Alf tore open the message and read it, and then scratched his head. What do you make of this? Listen. Is there a man named Chaffin in your company, or something like that? Stop. If so, will he communicate with Kessel & Baumann, 24 Longacre Building, Broadway? I know that building, said the manager of the Nixon and Mr Linigan. Stuffed with lawyers' offices. Quite fancy ones, too. Well, quite clearly the message is intended for me, Charlie pronounced. Chaffin. Chaplin. See? There's the cha. And the inn. And these Keppel and Boo Boo figures have just made a mistake in the middle. Yeah, I suppose it could be that, Alf said. Wait a minute, Freddy Jr. piped up. Why should it not be for Stan? Chaff is closer to Jeff than it is to your name. What? No, no. It is clearly meant for me. Charlie frowned, unable to grasp a scenario in which he wasn't the centre of attention. Fred's right, I chipped in, enjoying the moment. Chaffin is much closer to Jefferson than it is to Chaplin, don't you think, Stan? Oh, I don't know, Stan said. Why would fancy lawyers want to see me? Exactly, Charlie said. It's far more likely that they would want to see me. All right, all right, Alf said, raising his voice to quell the increasingly boisterous discussion. Here's what I'm going to do. I will reply, saying that our Mr Chaffin will call on Messrs Kessel and Bauman tomorrow. That's good, Charlie interrupted, and then I shall go and see what's what. And both of you will go, you and Stan, Alf said firmly. Chaplin blinked, surprised not to be getting his own way. Both of us? And I will come with you, I said, putting my arms around both their shoulders. Let's have a day out in New York City, eh? <laughs> "'Spending one of our precious days off riding a train "'did feel a little bit like a busman's holiday, "'but at least we were travelling like regular members of the public "'and not in that Carnot boxcar. "'So what do you think these fellows want to talk to you about, Charlie?' "'Stan asked as we rattled over to New York early the next morning. "'Or you, Stan,' I insisted. "'It might still be you.' "'I have a wealthy aunt somewhere in America,' Charlie said. "'Maybe she's died and left me a fortune.' "'We gaped at him. "'This was an astonishing thing to drop into the conversation.' "'You have a wealthy aunt?' I said. "'Why have you not mentioned this before?' "'I don't know. I... How wealthy? "'Where does all the money come from? "'And how are you related? Mother's side? Father's side? "'Well, I I can't quite. "'And where in America does she live? "'Why have you not visited her?' "'I'm not sure. I'm wondering now whether I may have dreamed the whole thing.' Charlie frowned and looked out of the window, and he genuinely did seem to be puzzled as to the existence or otherwise of this aunt. "'What about you, Stan? "'Do you have any rich relatives tucked away anywhere?' (laughs) Ha <laughs> no, that's the stuff of a penny blood, isn't it, Stan laughed, rich aunts. There was something, though, you know, Charlie said, still worrying away at it like a dog with a bone, and seemed to recall my mother talking about a distant connection of some sort, possibly even a minor royal. Well, that pretty much put the tin lid on that. Everyone knew his poor mother was crackers. We'll find out soon enough, I said. 24 Long Acre Building on Broadway was indeed a hive of loyally activity, as Mr Linegan had suggested, and we found our way to the reception room of Messrs Kessel and Bowman. Their receptionist disappeared for a minute or two, leaving us to twiddle our thumbs in the wood-panelled, leather-seated finery of our surroundings, before returning with a pot of tea, some cups, and a plate of biscuits on a silver tray. "'Mr Kessel will see you now,' she said, and led us through to a plush office with a view out over Times Square below. A tall, lean, mustachioed figure was standing by the window with his thumbs in his waistcoat pockets as we entered, and he turned to greet us with a welcoming smile. ''Mr Chaffin?'' he inquired, peering at the three of us, left to right, and then back again. ''Well, that remains to be seen, doesn't it?'' Charlie said, stepping forward. ''I beg your pardon. My name is Chaplin, Charles Chaplin, and my colleague here is Mr Stanley Jefferson. We believe that the Chaffin you seek is one or other of us, but it is for you to solve the conundrum, Mr Kessel.'' "'I see. I see. And your name, sir?' he inquired of me. "'Dando. Arthur Dando. Pleased to make your acquaintance, sir,' I said formally. "'Oh, no. No, no, no. That is not it at all,' Kessel said, looking blank. "'Not even close. "'Mr. Dando is merely an interested observer,' Charlie said airily. "'Please feel free to ignore him entirely.' Kessel moved to his seat behind a handsomely appointed desk. "'Please be seated, gentlemen. Some English tea?' "'Clearly we were expected then.' "'Charlie breezed on while Stan busied himself being mother. "'So, Mr Kessel, what can you tell us about the man Chaffin?' "'Kessel was somewhat flustered by this directness "'and picked up a page on which some handwritten notes had been made. "'Ah, oh, well, um, yes, let me see now. Um, "'The man I am charged with contacting, "'who may or may not be called Chaffin, is a comedian.' "'As we both are,' Charlie said, indicating himself and Stan. "'Quite so, yes, yes. A comedian, let me see, "'who plays a notoriously inebriated character "'for the Fred Carno Comedy Company.' "'Ha!' Charlie cried triumphantly. "'Yes, it is me. I knew it was me!' Stan shrugged amiably as if to say, "'Fair enough,' and poured some tea. "'So, what is the matter at hand, Mr Kessel? "'What is it that you wish to impart?' "'So to be clear,' Kessel said, "'I am addressing my remarks now to you, is that correct?' "'Just so.' Very well. I represent the interests of the New York Motion Picture Company, who would like to engage your services as a comic actor. I take it you would be agreeable? (coughs) what? Charlie was flabbergasted. Motion pictures, eh? Well, well, well. Stan and I looked at one another, eyes wide, Charlie's head tilted to one side, pantomiming thoughtful consideration. "'I won't deny I have long been intrigued by the motion-picture art form,' he said. "'The notion of capturing one perfect performance for posterity "'rather than trotting out twenty-five variously flawed versions every week. "'It is interesting. "'We know all about the slog of vaudeville, don't we, lads?' "'Indeed we do,' I said. "'And based where? Here in New York? "'It is my understanding that motion-pictures are made in various centres, "'here, and also in New Jersey, in Chicago, in Florida, and even in Los Angeles.' particularly those who are trying to get as far away as possible from the Edison patent enforcers, eh? That is certainly true, Kessel agreed, and although we are called the New York Motion Picture Company, in point of fact we are the parent company for a number of smaller outfits, including one specialising in comedies, which is called Keystone Pictures, and they are indeed based in Los Angeles. I was dumbstruck. From nowhere had come the sunny prospect of Charlie being tucked away in hot, dusty Los Angeles, one of the least appealing of all the stops we made on the Sullivan and Considine circuit, leaving us, leaving me, free to tour on bigger and bigger time without him. Well, it was intoxicating. Charlie was thinking. Hmm. How has this offer come about as a matter of interest? Does the name Max Sennett ring a bell, Mr Chaffin? Chaplin? Uh, No, I'm afraid it does not. It rang a bell with me, though, a distant one. I padded through the house of my memory in my old slippers and dressing gown, trying to locate the tinkling. Mr. Sennett witnessed a performance of yours at the American Music Hall right here in New York City. Sennett, there he was. I had him. The big straw-haired fellow with the huge hands and the beetling brows. I remembered his lithe and lively friend, Mabel, the Gibson girl, and his lugubrious companion, DW something or other. And then I remembered him saying... "'When I set up my studio, that's the sort of guy I'm going to be talking to.' Lord above, that was the night. The night that Stan pretended to be Charlie and had such a stunning success. And they asked me his name and I was so very drunk. And then I got stuck between saying Jefferson and saying Chaplin, didn't I? Just in case they might be scheming to whisk Charlie away. Which meant that Chaffin actually was Jefferson, after all. "'Wait,' I said. Kessel turned to me, as did Stan and Charlie.' So this offer, this offer from Mac Sennett was actually intended for Stan. My mind was twisting every which way all of a sudden, because on the one hand this might be a great opportunity for my friend, and yet on the other it might represent the best chance for me to get shot of Charlie Chaplin for good and all. I had a mere second to think as they peered inquiringly at me. Nothing, I said. Carry on. Hmm, Charlie mused. Aspects of the proposal do have appeal, working out in the open air for one thing, cutting down on all the travelling that my life seems to consist of these days, that blessed boxcar, eh, he cut as a smile, then scratched his chin, and creating material for new pictures would certainly give my creative muscles a lot more exercise than they presently enjoy. Good points, I said, sitting now on the edge of my seat, very good points, excellent, said Kessel. "'Well, then, I shall communicate the good news to Mr. Sennett, "'and we will begin making the necessary arrangements.' "'Charlie was looking very confident, however. "'Whoa, whoa, whoa,' he said. "'Hold your horses. First of all, I am under contract to Mr. Fred Carnot for another tour.' "'Kessel paused, his pen poised. "'I see. So when would you be available to start?' "'Not so fast, Mr. Kessel. "'I do not believe I have yet heard an actual offer.' Ah, oh, yes, well, Mr. Sennett has authorised me to propose the sum of $125 a week for a deal to make 12 moving films a month. Stan turned to me behind Charlie's back and mouthed the word, wow. Charlie, meanwhile, took this stupendous offer in his stride. Of course, you would have to better my current salary with the Carnot Company, he said. Which is? $200 a week. There was a spluttering noise to my left, as Stan was taken by surprise, halfway through biting a biscuit. Two hundred dollars a week,' Kessel said, frowning, stroking his moustache with a finger and thumb. "'Vaudeville is big business, you know,' Chaplin said. "'Indeed, it must be,' the lean lawyer said, getting thoughtfully to his feet. "'I shall need to consult my colleagues. Gentlemen, thank you for coming to call. The listings pages of Variety and Billboard will enable me to follow your itinerary, Mr. Chaffin, and I dare say we shall be in touch.' Out on the street, Charlie was beaming, fit to bust. Well, that was fun, he said. Pretty exciting stuff, Stan said. Yes, indeed, Charlie said. Of course, I'm not actually going to do it. Lunch? He led the way down Broadway into Times Square while I came crashing down to earth in his wake. I glanced briefly down 43rd Street towards the mouldy old brownstone with the laundry in the basement which had been our home on our first visit to the big city. It was gone, demolished and in its place a new Times building was taking shape. Over a plateful of steak and potatoes, Stan and I pressed Charlie for his thinking. "'So you're not interested?' I said. "'Oh, dear me, no,' Charlie said rather smugly. "'What? Work in Los Angeles, that horrible airless dump? "'Give up all the grand work I've done in vaudeville? For what? "'Some anonymous running around in the dirt? "'You know most film comedians don't even get credited by name?' So why didn't you tell them you weren't interested? asked Stan, always the straight shooter. I am in the last year of my contract with Carno. Who is paying you $200 a week, apparently? Stan scoffed. Oh, of course he isn't. He pays me 75 But if these fellows will double my money, well, is going to have to dig deeper into those miserly pockets. I chewed on my steak as the dream of Charlie leaving to make pictures receded before my very eyes. Have you seen any... Keystone Flickers, by the way, he went on. I think I have. Just some harem scarum scrambling around in the muck. They have a bunch of characters who are cops, I think, who fall over and bump into things. But it's not for me. Vaudeville, that's the place to be. It's booming. Anyone can see that. New theatres opening all the time. Pages and pages in the newspapers. And we've just been swimming in the shallows, you know, with old Considine. There are still peaks to conquer, believe you me. As if to demonstrate the point, that very afternoon, Charlie took us to a matinee of the Ziegfeld Follies of 1913. Sure enough, it was a very different world to the hard scrabble provincial touring we were used to. A lavish Broadway review, in residence at the new Amsterdam Theatre. It featured breathtakingly expensive sets, and ticket prices to match. The Ziegfeld girls were an eyeful, and no mistake, and it would certainly have been no great hardship to share backstage corridors with them and their feathered headdresses. I inspected them all closely, wondering if Tilly might have found her way to Broadway, but no such luck. And glamorous though they were, none of them could have held a candle to her. As well as the luxurious musical numbers, there were comedians who had all graduated from the world of touring vaudeville. Frank Tinney, known as the Funbeam, for instance, whose routine consisted of deliberately corny jokes, and an overgrown schoolboy of a comic called Ed Wynne, who styled himself Joe King, the Joke King. There was Nat Wills, who was a celebrated tramp comic with the jaunty little walk and the cheeky outlook that was the stock-in-trade of the type. He did a musical skit, a take on the popular hit The Trail of the Lonesome Pine, that Stan was particularly taken with. And best of all was a cantankerous comic juggler called W.C. Fields, who did a routine with a pool table. He had any number of bizarrely shaped cues with which he would attempt a variety of trick shots, and his table was specially constructed for a number of genuinely surprising visual gags. I greatly admired the selfish world-weariness of his persona, and the many ways he found to scoop his hat off his head with a Q-tip. Charlie sat through all of these acts without cracking a smile, as was his wont. Afterwards, though, he had plenty to say. "'See?' These guys are at the top of our game. This is where it's possible to end up if you keep pushing on in vaudeville. Some of these chaps are on the best part of a thousand bucks a week. A thousand. And all it takes is getting spotted. That evening, Charlie announced his intention to spend the night in New York, so Stan and I rode the evening train back to Philadelphia and our digs, while he, if you can believe this, booked himself into the Aster. He must have been feeling pretty full of himself. All the way back, I brooded on what had happened that day. Charlie seemed pretty determined not to risk going into the motion picture business. But perhaps he could be persuaded. Chapter 34. Bombshell. As those hot summer weeks rolled slowly by, I was preoccupied with working out what Charlie was thinking. If he would only take the plunge and leave Carno, how marvellous would that be? When we arrived at the theatre in Minneapolis, there was a letter for Charlie from the office of Kessel and Bauman. I was on pins to know what was in it, but Charlie was keeping things close to his chest. Negotiations are ongoing, was all he'd say, tapping the side of his nose. To read the pages of Variety, you would hardly know that a burgeoning film industry existed. Tucked away on an inside page, you might find a small column of tidbits, such as, Roscoe Arbuckle has just finished his first Keystone film. Something like that. Compared to the acreage given over to vaudeville gossip, however, this was next to nothing at all. There were, however, some new publications springing up devoted solely to the moving picture business. Items such as Motography, for example, or Motion Picture World, and I would pick these up wherever I could in the hope that I would find ammunition for my war of attrition on Charlie's resistance to the keystone offer. The best time to fire a shot across his bows was when he was a captive audience, sitting across from me as the Carnot boxcar devoured another couple of hundred sweaty miles. "'Listen to this,' I said, with all the casualness I could muster. "'John Bunny?' the popular Vitagraph comedian, says he has received fan mail from as far afield as France and Italy following the release of Pickwick Papers earlier this year. Really? Charlie said, admiring his fingernails. Yes, France and Italy, it says. The portly star revealed that he has never visited Europe, and despite numerous invitations to appear there, he regrets that he is now committed to filming 52 weeks a year. Imagine that, Stan chipped in. A roaring success in France and Italy, and he's never even been there. Interesting, Charlie murmured, looking out of the window, not interested at all. The trouble was that so many so-called comedy films then featured a gang of anonymous buffoons running around like headless chickens, tumbling over entirely imaginary obstacles in stories that made no sense whatsoever. If motion pictures were ever really going to grab hold of Charlie's attention, it would be because he saw something half-decent that he could improve with the application of his genius... That's how the happy accident of sharing a bill at the Empress in Winnipeg with a Keystone film entitled Barney Oldfield's Race for a Life made such a valuable impression. Stan and I persuaded Charlie to come round front of house and watch it. You could always get a seat when the flicker screen came down because a significant number would take the opportunity to go and relieve themselves or refresh themselves at the bar, or both, in a kind of self-perpetuating cycle." The film was a comic melodrama in which a lovesick rube tries to save his sweetheart from the clutches of a moustache-twirling villain. It began with the young Romeo shyly offering the girl a flower with the kind of nauseating display of simpering that Charlie himself so excelled at. He was not impressed with this, sitting in the seat beside me, and I distinctly heard a scornful Pfft. In truth, the lead in this flicker was not a traditionally built romantic hero, being a big, clumsy lump with huge hands and an outsized face, and with a start, I recognised him. It was Max Sennett himself. The girl, once I got a good look at her, was none other than sparky Mabel Normand. She didn't have a great deal of opportunity to show what she could do, because once she had rejected the overtures of the roguish villain, played by Ford Stirling, she was promptly kidnapped and tied to a railway track. While Stirling and his cohorts go off to commandeer a locomotive to finish her off with, Sennett, the Lovelorn Lump, gets wind of Mabel's predicament and rushes to her rescue. Fortunately, he bumps into Barney Oldfield, the celebrated racing driver, who has his name painted on the side of his car, just in case you don't recognise him. Oldfield and Senate career wildly along in a desperate race with Sterling and Co on their murderous train and true to form the famous racer begins to pull ahead and then puts in such a turn of speed that he overtakes the camera and disappears leaving sterling shaking his fist in impotent fury senate and oldfield reach mabel and start chipping away at the chains holding her with some puny looking chisels at this rate it will take hours to free her and yet oh no Here comes the train, bearing down on them, and it approaches so fast, getting larger and larger on the screen, and they're taking so long to free Mabel that surely they must all be destroyed. At the very last possible instant, Barney Oldfield picks up her legs, Max Senate her shoulders, and they dash aside with literally a split second to spare. The engine loomed large on the screen and flashed past, and to a man, woman and child, the audience flung their hands up in the air in shock. Even Charlie, the most impassive and mirthless spectator you'd ever sit next to anywhere, flinched and gasped along with the rest. Deep down I guess we all knew that if the comedians had been killed then we wouldn't be seeing these pictures, but it was still a terrific coup. There was genuine terror on Mac Sennett's face as the train brushed by his sleeve. The thought, hurry it up for Christ's sake, Oldfield, writ large upon his oversized features. Perhaps this was the first film to stir some ambition in Charlie. He saw firsthand the dramatic impact a properly crafted cinematic moment could have on an audience, and he also saw, in Sennett's lumbering boob of a lead, a performance he could easily better. In Winnipeg, we found ourselves once again sharing a bill with the Marx brothers. In the bar late one night, Charlie was showing off and inadvertently confided some indication of his thinking about Keystone. Julius, in his brash and forward way, asked him outright what he was making working for Carno. And Charlie said, "'75 bucks a week.' From the looks on the Marx Brothers' faces, I guessed that this was better money than they were on. "'I've been thinking over an offer from a movie mogul, as it happens,' Charlie went on. "'Really? A mogul? An honest-to-goodness mogul?' Julius said. "'Fancy!' I'm being offered $500 a week to make movies. Stan and I shared a glance. How much? Congratulations, Julius said, deadpan. When do you start? I'm not going to take it, Charlie said. Julius was astonished. Why not? You're only getting 75 now. Don't you like money? Of course I do, Charlie replied. But look, boys, I can make good on what Carno is paying. If I sign up with the pictures and they find me out, they'll fire me. Then where will I be? I'll tell you where I'll be. Flat on my back. He shook his head, took a thoughtful sip of port. The Marksboy's jaws had hit the floor, one, two, three, four, at the very idea of knocking back that sort of dough. I puzzled over this conversation later, lying awake in my bed, with Freddy snoring away in the other berth. Was Charlie really being held back by a fear of failure? And had he really managed to drive Keystone up so high? Surely not. It was almost as if he wanted people to talk him into it, wanted people to tell him he would be a fool to pass it up. There was a tradition at the theatre that the madam and the girls from the local sporting house would always be in the upper box for the Wednesday matinee of any week, and if they liked what they saw, they would not be shy about inviting an act over for some further entertainments of their own devising. That week, the Marks boys were flushed with success. They had fired a preening tenor who had got above himself, and their show was going better than ever before. On the Wednesday afternoon, they looked up at the top box, and the girls were waving a piece of paper with their address written on it, trying to attract their attention. It was too high for them to reach, though, and the girls didn't want to just throw the paper down in case it fell into the wrong hands. After taking several curtain calls and a number of failed attempts to jump up and grab the note, Blonde Arthur stayed in front of the curtain when it came down, and when he went up for the start of the next act, up he went with it and landed in the box right amongst the ladies. Problem solved. That evening there was quite a party over at that sporting house. Freddy, Stan, Charlie and I accompanied the Marks lads over there, and those girls were mighty pleased to see us all. The motto of the place seemed to be, Why have a chair when a chaise longue will do? The walls were covered in thick, velvety flock wallpaper in maroon and cream, decorated with framed nude photographs of the girls themselves. The pictures seemed stark and unappealing compared to the genuine articles which were available wherever one looked girls wearing candy-striped stockings and little else, others wearing elaborate flouncy undergarments that it would have taken Houdini a good few minutes to extricate the girl from. Everywhere, the girl's overpowering perfumes competed to assault your sinuses and sting your eyes. There was a dog, an English bulldog, and I found myself imagining him going stark staring mad after being asked to track one particular girl in that place. The booze flowed, and gradually a pairing-up process began to happen. "'Freddy was the first to disappear, then the Marx boys one by one, "'and finally I found my eye taken by a tantalising pair of pink stockings "'and began to follow them up the staircase that led up from the large and luxurious salon "'to a balcony with various doors, leading to who-knew-what delights. "'At the top of the stairs I looked back, and there was Charlie, all by himself. "'The madam herself had taken quite a shine to him, but he'd politely fended her off, "'and none of the highly attractive younger girls seemed able to arouse his interest.' Instead, he sat on the piano stool, tinkling away at a little melody with his left hand, while his right scratched the ear of the madam's English bulldog. I stopped. What was this? Shyness? It seemed almost wilful. and if he was trying to avoid any awkwardness, surely it was more difficult to continually reject these obliging ladies than it was to take up with one of them and join in the party. That was the line of least resistance. No, it almost looked like... Innocence. That thought struck me like a thunderbolt, and I froze at the top of the stairs and leaned on the balcony for support. The girl I was following disappeared into a boudoir across the landing, beckoning with an alluring finger, leaving the door invitingly open. I glanced back down at Charlie playing with the dog. His relations with women, as far as I had observed them, had always been far more romantic than lascivious. He'd pursued that very young girl, Hetty Kelly, back in London, and seemed utterly besotted with her, waxing nauseatingly lyrical about the divine smell of the soap she used. You would have said it was an idealised romantic infatuation, though, rather than a physical one. He ended up driving the poor girl away, I remembered, by demanding a declaration of undying love after just a couple of meetings, and he spent more time pining wistfully for her than he ever did actually enjoying her company. Recently he'd been paying plenty of attention to little Annie Forrester in our company, another very young girl who was a picture of fresh-faced innocence. And his pursuit of Tilly, that was highly romantic too, wasn't it? He certainly enjoyed casting himself as the romantic hero, a knight-errant, and wooing her away from me seemed to be the most appealing aspect of the whole affair to him. When the other lads in the company, like Freddie K. Jr. and Mike Asher, had chased hotly after burlesque girls or the dancers in the other acts on the bill, he had never not once joined in or even shown any particular interest in their bragging afterwards about their adventures. Was it possible I wondered that he didn't actually know what to do was it? This thought was still intriguing me at the end of that week when the boxcar headed west, towards the Rocky Mountain Empresses once more, with Stan sitting opposite me. I was always wary of having a dig at Chaplin in front of Stan. For one thing, they were pretty matey. They'd shared a room on tour, and inasmuch as Charlie knocked around with anyone in the company, it would be with Stan. For another, Stan was such a sunny individual, always prepared to see the best in everyone, it made it difficult to try and discuss the darker side of my rivalry with Charlie, so I had grown used to biting my tongue. However, this was too juicy a titbit to keep to myself, so I beckoned him closer in order that we wouldn't be overheard and told him what I'd seen in the Winnipeg sporting house. Stan just laughed. "'What's so funny? It's possible, isn't it?' "'No,' Stan chuckled. "'It's not possible.' "'You can't possibly know for certain, though,' I said. "'Can't I?' "'What, you mean you've seen him? In action?' "'Of course not, no, but I do have pretty conclusive proof that our friend is a man of the world.' What proof? You can't possibly have proof. What are you talking about? Suddenly Stan caught himself and seemed to realise he'd said too much. Listen, let's drop it, shall we? Drop it? You're joking, aren't you? Tell me what you know, Stanley. Stan was getting flustered now. I can't, all right? Just leave it at that. All right, I said. I'll tell you what. Either you tell me what you were alluding to so coyly, or I'll march over there and ask Charlie myself. No, don't do that. I'll tell him that you have personally vouched for his experience and expertise and demand the details. You wouldn't. Oh, wouldn't I? I got up halfway to my feet and Stan shoved me back into my seat. I smiled. He was such a pushover. Listen, he said, suddenly serious. I'll tell you. I should probably have told you before now, but you're not going to like it much. What on earth are you talking about? Stan took a deep breath, glanced over his shoulder to make sure no one was earwigging. "'and began. "'It was in San Diego. "'I came back to the room I was sharing with Charlie "'and found him in a terrible state. "'The curtains were drawn, "'and he was lying on his bed with his knees drawn up to his chest, "'clutching his shins. "'His hair was all over the place, "'and there was an empty bottle of bourbon rolling around on the floor. "'I remembered seeing Charlie in one of those self-indulgent depressions "'back in 1910, when he thought he wasn't going to America "'and his carno career was in tatters. "'I asked him what was the matter.' Stan said, and he groaned, said it was all over, all his work, his career, ruined. What? How the... Stan held his hand up to stop me, and dropped his voice to a whisper. He'd got a girl pregnant, that's what it was, you see. I whistled softly, and he was fretting about what the Governor said, about moral turpitude, and he couldn't see any way that he wasn't going to get the chop, even though the theatre managers loved him. That's him talking, I said. "'Yes,' Stan admitted. "'So I said, why didn't he pay the girl off, "'give her some money to, you know, take herself out of the picture? "'But he said he didn't have any.' "'Ha!' I scoffed. "'Did you not hear him bragging to Julius "'about how much he's getting paid? "'Apparently, though, all that goes into a savings scheme "'at a bank in Manhattan. "'He can't just access it whenever he wants. "'So anyway, I had built up a little bit of a nest egg, you know. "'Since you stopped playing poker with George Seaman, you mean. "'Exactly.' And I gave it to him, to help him out. And he gave it to her, and that was that. Phew, I said. You're a good mate, Stan. But why did you not tell me all this before? I mean, obviously it's a secret and everything, and I suppose you are worried that I'd try and use it to get Charlie kicked out, but still. Stan said nothing. Just sat there looking at me, waiting for me to catch up. Then, with a bump that shook my world and rattled my teeth, I did. I did the boxcar seemed to retreat, and all I could hear was the rushing of the blood in my own ears. Arthur, Stan was saying, but he sounded like he was half a mile away. Tilly. The girl was Tilly. Blonde ringlets and sparkling green eyes, skin like warm silk, that first kiss under the street lamp outside the fun factory. Oh, Arthur, such a silly thing has happened when we were mistakenly allotted married accommodation on tour in Blackburn, her head on my shoulder as the Cairn Rona pulled away from the dock, leaving for a new start in the new world. A New Year's kiss in Times Square that went on and on and on. Lying together, watching the lights of the elevated train on the wall of my room in Chicago. Tilly on Charlie's arm, laughing at something he said with those big white teeth. Tilly and Charlie, together. Tilly, gone in the night, travelling alone, who knows where. Tilly, pregnant. Tilly taken and ruined and discarded, paid off by Charlie Chaplin like a common whore. It was too much to take in all at once. I was going to need hours, days, weeks to think this one through, to come to terms with it. My fists couldn't wait that long, however, and they were already clenched and pushing down on the arm of the seat as I staggered to my feet, rocking from side to side with the motion of the train. Stan stood also and planted the palm of his hand in the centre of my chest. ''No,'' he said, ''don't.'' I was breathing heavily and wouldn't have been surprised to see steam bursting from my nose like a bull ready to charge. I took half a step forward, pushing Stan aside, but he grabbed me firmly and wrestled me back into my seat, a pleading look on his face. ''Think,'' he said urgently. ''You have it out with Charlie. What will happen? I'll bust his nose, maybe knock out some of those lovely white teeth,'' I growled. ''And then what?'' "'Stan hissed. "'You'll be out, that's what. "'And once Charlie realises that I have let the cat out of the bag, "'well, I'll be for the high jump as well, won't I? "'Alf won't be able to save us. "'Not the position Charlie's in nowadays. "'He is the company, like it or not.' "'Not,' I muttered. "'I should never have told you,' Stan said, shaking his head. "'Yes, you should,' I hissed back. "'You should have told me six months ago, and a hundred times since. "'I was in an impossible position, you must see that. "'Caught between two friends.' one of whom has never let you down and stood by you in the hardest of times, and the other of whom went behind your back to get you the sack because he was worried that you were going to be every bit as good as him. I am sorry, you know. I looked at my friend's earnest pleading face, and I knew it wasn't him that I was really angry with. In fact, the anger was already draining away and being replaced by an awful feeling of desolation and impotence.' Chaplin was still snoozing away at the far end of the carriage, all unaware of the storm clouds gathering on his horizon. His mouth seemed to twitch into a little smile at something he was dreaming. Or maybe it was the utter completeness of his victory over me.